We live in a culture that is really a post-truth culture that has embraced relativism and uh, post-truth is defined by Oxford Dictionary. It's a recent uh, word added there relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Uh, truthiness, another definition uh, given recently, uh, well, 2006, but 10 years ago, but the quality of preferring concepts or facts one wishes to be true rather than the concepts or facts known to be true. Post-truth spirituality is a spirituality not rooted in a biblically informed, orthodox, transcendent truth. Transcendent meaning it's not a truth that comes from within us. It's a truth that comes from outside of us, right? It's, it's a truth that's beyond all of us. So we hold these things to be self-evident. Okay, that we're all created equal, right? Self-evident. Why? Because it's for a transcendent truth that, that no government can establish. And that's kind of the foundation of our country for that matter, right? Certain truths, we just, we know they're transcendent. Well, not, not today, because now we have a spirituality not rooted in biblical informed, biblically informed, orthodox, transcendent truth, but rather personal perceptions, emotions, and experiences formed by a preferred and self-determined reality one wishes to be true in place of a supernaturally revealed and authenticated uh, concepts and facts that we know to be true. In other words, God's word, God's word. And so understanding these things, the two great challenges facing Christians today, one is the myth that truth is not absolute, but it's personal, self-determined and relative. And then two, there is a crisis of legitimate true faith in churches today, where there's a lot of people that profess to be Christians because they're relatively spiritual, but they really don't have authentic faith in Christ. And so they mis- have misrepresented Jesus to the world. So the world's looking, going, I don't really want to be like them because they don't really look any different than me. And there's not really a consistent witness of those who profess Christ. And for that matter, among Christians, there's not a consistent understanding of what it means to even be a, a follower of Christ, right? Because we're all relatively good people. And and what we do physically that are bad, that's that's, you know... That's not that's kind of separate from who I am because God loves me for who I really am, which is ultimately a good person. That's the methodology and thinking of the world today and many Christians. And that is what John is challenging. Let me give you a, a thought here. In 1945, a little story, there was a lady by the name of Ida Weisenbacher, 21 year old Australian or Austrian farm girl. And this young lady uh, was awakened in the middle of the night in Austria by some Nazi, a Nazi officer knocking on her door. And she comes to the door and he says, we need your services right now. We need you to get your horses and your um, uh, farm cart, whatever wagon. And we have some uh, stuff we need you to transport. And so they brought her out and they wanted to get a bunch of wooden boxes of which she had no idea what was inside, loaded up and then take them across her farmland, not that far of a distance, but far enough um, that they needed some assistance and the cars couldn't, the trucks couldn't drive there. And so they took them to the shore, loaded them on boats, and she saw the Nazi soldiers as they took them out into the uh, German soldiers, out into the middle of this lake there, Lake Toplitz. And they dumped the boxes into this cold Austrian uh, lake in the Austrian mountains. 
the lake is not a relatively big lake. It's about a mile long it's, uh, at its you know, longest point. But it was about 200 to 350 feet deep. And so for you know, half a century, the mystery of what was in those wooden boxes laid uh, on the bottom of that lake. And nobody knew what was there until CBS and the 60 Minutes team partnered with an oceaneering company uh, with some uh, subs to go down and explore and figure out what was in those boxes. What was it that was in those boxes? And so here's what they found. They went down and they finally uh, were able to pull up. And the first couple times they started to pull up, they found boxes that were broken and there was this wad of this thing of paper there. And as they picked them up, they just disintegrated. So it took a while before they could even get some up intact to figure out what it was. And so they finally got some up and they saw written on some of the paper, Bank of England, the Bank of England. And what they discovered is what could have been a far different ending to World War II. You see, Hitler had put some people in charge of uh, printing presses and they were able to manufacture what what amounted in the end to the today's equivalent of $4.5 billion of English banknotes. They had just perfected a $100, American $100 bill, and they were about to start manufacturing American $100 bills um, to the tune of a million dollars a day. And the plan of Hitler was to fly over England and to drop $4.5 billion over England and that would destroy the economy and therefore destroy their efforts of England to fight back against Germany would have easily won the war. And days before they were able to pull the trigger on this plan, Russians coming in from one side, the ally, other allied forces coming from the other side, they were able to converge upon upon Hitler and they, they broke down the printing presses and they got rid of the evidence and it laid uh, un disturbed for over 50 years before they finally figured out the the extent of this plan. If you want to destroy a nation, one of the best ways is to counterfeit their currency and then to just destroy the value of their dollar overnight. If you want to destroy God's truth, one of the best ways is to counterfeit and to produce Billions of different versions of truth that other people are self-determining and figuring out their own way and dump them upon society. And then nobody knows really what's really the truth. And Satan is so smart. He is the deceiver, right? He's the deceiver. And so he is able to be so shrewd as to not make lies obvious, but to make them um, believable enough that people will think that it's true. Even in the garden, the first temptation was not a full frontal denial of God's truth. God says, if you eat of this, you will surely die. It, that was the response when Satan said, just try this further. I think you'll enjoy it. And, and then Satan's response was, you will not surely die. You're not going to really die. I mean, you're not going to die, die. I mean, you'll die, but you're not. I mean, you're, but you're going to know things that God doesn't want you to know. Well, that's true. You, you, that we're going to know things that God didn't want them to know. Spiritual death, separation from Him, fall of humanity. He didn't want them to know that. The pain and the disgust and the the um, perversion and the shame of sin. He didn't want them to experience that. The separation between their relationship with Him and and their relationship with God. They, he didn't want them to experience that and didn't want us to experience that. And yet they did. Why? Because they bit 
just one lie. And now I think we have, I, who could put a number on it? I mean, there's literally 10,000, some have estimated, different messages you get daily of different advertisements as you drive, as you read, as you're on the internet. I mean, it's not even talking about different belief systems. And so how in the world can we, uh, in this kind of world, how can we have discernment to understand what is true from what is false? I mean, how can we tell the difference between what is a legitimate British pound and what is a fabrication? How can we understand what is legitimately the gospel and the truth and the, and the way by if we believe in this, we can have salvation and eternal life in lies that are Jesus plus this or this or this and that, that drive us to the world to find our answers? How can we do that? Well, God has given us some truths that can help us. And so direct your attention to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read 1 through 6. John says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. This is spirit of the Antichrist. Which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. You might say, well, who is the they that are up from the world? This is the, this is the false believers that have been in the church that have left the church and they went out from us. John chapter John two, because they were not of us and they believed and they've been teaching lies about Jesus saying that he really never came physically. Jesus came spiritually, but he come physically because they believe that the physical body was evil. Spiritual was good. And so it was kind of a ancient new age. Um, belief system, new age. You said, what is new age ism? New age is what is taught by, um, Oprah Winfrey and Eckhart Tolle. And it is a form of Hinduism, arguably Buddhism that we find it's, it's something that many Christians have embraced elements of. Okay. And so it's, it's that God, there's a God within us and we can find God through, um, there's something divine about us internally. And so Jesus is the way shower, not the way. This is what new age teaches. And so that you say, what do you believe about Jesus? I love Jesus. Oprah Winfrey could say, I love Jesus. Oh, he's awesome. By the way, there's a new kids movie out that she's a part of. It's a, it looks like it's appealed to kids and she's in it and you do, you watch it and that's new age. You watch the previews and it is a demonic new age. If you've never seen it, it's obvious. There's a God with his powers within you. And so you don't look, don't look to God for power. You are your own God. And when you worship Jesus as the way, you cease to find true life and enlightenment and hope. That, that's the lie. And yet Jesus said, I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I don't show you how to get there. I am the way to get there. I'm the gate, John chapter 10, that the sheep have to come in to get into the fold. If you want to be God's people, you have to come through me. You can't come through anybody else. I'm the only way you can get in. And I'm not telling you that to be mean or narrow-minded I'm telling you that because I love you and I want to tell you the truth because I want you to know me. I want you to know my voice. I want you to, because there's, there's others that are going to come over the fence and they're going to try to deceive you and they're going to have voices that are not going to be the same as my voice. 
And it will be easy for you to get deceived from them. And I don't want you to be deceived. Jesus made it clear throughout his teaching multiple times talked about there's going to come a day where false teachers are going to come in. There's going to be wolves wearing sheep's clothing. In other words, they're going to look like us, but they're not going to be of us. And John's letter is addressing one of the first waves of those kind of people. And there's been many since then that have come into the church and professed to be true followers of Christ. And yet they really were not. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. But he says they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. And then lastly, verse six, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the truth, that we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, in the next few moments, I want to, I want to hit some highlights of this passage, and then I want to um, give you some thoughts on discernment that I hope will really is the beginning of, hopefully, um, a commitment on your part to know God's word more intimately so as to refute the false messages in teaching in the world today. So firstly, to think about truth and error, to think about the different thoughts out there, the different messages. How do we discern false messages and, for that matter, false messengers? And how do we make sure that we're not teaching something that is of error? First of all, we need to know that false teachers, we know them, we recognize them by examination. So it says first to test the spirits means to evaluate the words, the actions, the life of such people to see whether they are from God. Do not just blindly follow, naively believe. Don't just gullibly fall in line with everyone you hear, regardless of how sincere you perceive them to be, regardless of how convincing and emotionally um, powerful their message is. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You've got to you can't flip your brain off at any point in the world we live in. Okay, you can't do it in church. You certainly can't do it watching the television, watching a movie, listening to a song, reading a book, reading an advertisement. There's nothing you can do that you, you can just flip your brain off and cease to be discerning. You've got to examine the spirits uh, and test the spirits to see if they're from God. What you're hearing, what you're reading, what you're perceiving. Is it from God? Is it true or is it air? Because, because that's a life or death thing. It's a big deal. And so you can't, you can't flip into neutral. It's just you can't do that. And so knowing and examining, and, and let me just pause there for a second to say, you know, I realize this is an incredibly arrogant thing in our society because, you, you know, who are you to say that, that you know what's true, right? I mean, listen, we can't judge. Stop judging. Don't be so judgmental. Be loving. Be kind. That's kind of the, the lie that's pushed forward is that Christians shouldn't judge. And, and I'm sorry, it's just not part of the Bible. I mean, why does it tell us to look at the fruit? Why does it talk about you know, good versus evil. Choose this day who you will serve. Choose life or death. If you choose life, you this. If you choose death, why is it contrasting? Light from darkness. Good from evil. Right from wrong. I mean, why are all of those distinctions there if you're not supposed to be discerning and judge the difference, right? When Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, <clears throat> he goes on to say, look, look, before you start pointing out specks in other people's eyes, deal with the log in your own. Once you've removed the log, now you are in a position to help somebody with the speck in their own eye, which is to say not to say don't be judgmental. It just says judge yourself first before you start judging others. 
And then you're in a position to help other people. Now, let me just distinguish also in English. When we talk about judging, it tends to have kind of a judicial, authoritative connotation to it. Okay, when you, when you leave here, you're going to make all kinds of judgments. You're going to judge whether to come to a complete stop at the end of the road or whether to do a rolling stop through the stop sign. You're going to make a judgment whether to um, to pull out and when that car's coming, if it's going slow enough that you can get out and turn or whether you should wait until it passes. You, we make judgments all the time, right? We judge what we're going to eat, what we're not going to eat. We judge what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. We're judging things constantly, right? So judgment doesn't necessarily mean judicially weighing down and saying, I am God and I have my say is what stands. That's not what this is talking about. But it is talking about we need to be discerning. And um, and so when the Bible talks about judgment and discernment, that's the thought there is be discerning, be have understanding. <clears throat> and so Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said, They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter says, They are secretly introduced. They secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, who, who bought them. Galatians, Paul warns of the pseudo-Adelphos, Adelphos' brothers, pseudo-false, the false brothers that will come in. They're going to look like you. You're not going to be able to tell a difference between the, them and other believers. They're going to be amongst us, but they're false brethren. So be careful and know how to examine them. Denny Aiken, in a commentary, New American Commentary, First John, he said this, spiritual activity is not necessarily godly activity. Spiritual activity is not necessarily godly activity. We must be discerning. We must listen and evaluate carefully the message and messengers against the infallible authority of Scripture. The secular mindset today, it, it rejects discernment as, as being unnecessary. I mean, just, just go with your heart. Just do what you feel like is right. And then among Christians, Christians who try to be discerning, well, they're, they're divisive and discerning Christians. They are those who cause division in the body of Christ. And so they're, they're, you've got to be, beware of those people. And as Christians that are all opinionated about what's true and what's false, <clears throat> they're just causing division. No, no, the, the God's Word tells us to be discerning. We've got to be discerning. And we can do it in a loving, gracious way, not an arrogant, prideful, I know more than you know. We can do it in a way that we are removing the logs out of our eyes so we can help people with the specks in their own eye. But nonetheless, we cannot be without discernment. So we know false teachers by examining them. Do not believe every spirit. What does he mean by spirit? Well, this could be a person's inner spirit. Sometimes that word is used in that way as a source of insight, feelings, will. But it also can be what some have described as an activating spirit that is not from God. In other words, a false spirit. Let me give you some examples. Second Corinthians 11 verse four says this, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we have proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one from the one you accepted, he goes on to say um, that, that there's going to be uh, men, false apostles, deceitful workmen, um, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
But he says, man, be discerning about there, there might be a different spirit that's teaching something false. And so persons that have been, um, are being controlled, manipulated, directed by ideas being planted by false spirits, demonic spirits, you better be really careful. There's a, there's a, some references, one's in uh, Thessalonians and then in Isaiah chapter 29 verse 10, it says, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the eyes of the prophets and covered your heads, the heads of the seers so that you cannot see those who the, the prophets have got to set to tell them the direction of where the nation needed to go. He's saying that he has sent deceitful spirits or I'm sorry, he sent a spirit of deep sleep upon them. And then Romans chapter 11, verse eight says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. So there, there's the spirit in us, the kind of seed of wisdom and knowledge. Then there's spirits that can influence us through other messages and messengers. By the way, Muhammad and Islam was founded upon him being in a cave and an angel appears to him and gives him these teachings. Satan can appear to be an angel of light, can he not? Where do you think Islam is from? I would say it's demonic. Mormonism also, I would argue, is demonic. Why would you say such an arrogant, cocky thing? Well, because they have taught a different version of who Jesus is. They deny him as God. They say he's just a man. He's a brother of Satan. And, and interestingly enough, where did the teachings of Mormonism and the Mormon book come from? It was given from an angel. So first John says, chapter four, be careful, test the spirits, test the spirits to make sure that they are from God. And he said, well, but Mormons are so nice and they have great families and whatever. And I've got several Mormon friends that I think are spectacular, kind, wonderful people. Now, I look at their families sometimes I'm thinking, I, I wish that there are more Christian families that look like theirs. But that's not the mark in and of itself of whether that what they teach is true. It's a deception. We need to be careful and discerning, loving, but discerning. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Look at the, the, the person's inner spirit. Be careful about um, what's being taught in, in our own lives. False teachers serve a different master. And false teachers are deceptive in their message. And then, um, secondly, we know them by their confessions. We know them by their confessions. By this, you know the spirit of God. Verse 2. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So what is he saying? He's saying faithful teachers declare the truth about Jesus. Having had the truth of Jesus revealed by God's spirit. It says the very end of verse six. God's spirit has revealed it. And so they faithful teachers, faithful believers are going to declare what's true about Jesus. But false teachers will deny the truth about Jesus. Every spirit, verse three, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So we, we know them by we know them by examining their lives and examining where they're coming from, the message. We know them by their confessions, by what they're teaching. And then thirdly, we know them by their origin. Where have they come from? Where are they from? Well, he says, verse four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Little children, you're from God. So they, we know them by their origin, legitimate believers. They're from God. They've been born again into new life. They are from God, but false teachers, false believers, those who profess a faith that they don't really have are 
from the world. So from God, faithful teachers, their foundation, they have confidence in God. And, and they know that God is greater than the one who's in this world. And so even though they're bombarded by, and, and I'll be honest with you, it, it can get discouraging sometimes when we, when we look at God's word, we know what it teaches, and then we look at the way society is going. And we look at the way that maybe even often those who profess to be Christians, what they'll believe falsely, wrongly. And it's so frustrating. How do people not see the truth? And am I the only one? And do I not? And, and you, we just feel like we're losing, uh, uh, we're, we're fighting a losing battle. But have confidence. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And it's not your job to convince anybody. You just live it, teach it, explain it, but trust God to open people's eyes. He alone has to reveal who Christ really is to somebody because we are dead apart from Christ's spirit coming into us. We can't see the light and the truth. We are blinded to it. And so there's a lot of people that we you might talk to that might get in your face or or might be kind of even aggressive against your profession of faith in Christ alone. And, and, and you don't need to take that personal. Just know that he in you is greater. And, and uh, look, if, if a servant's not greater than his master, and if your master was persecuted, even the point of death, you know, don't expect it to be easy and nice all the time, right? That works in in the past has worked in American Christianity, but it doesn't work in Christianity around most of the world. And so uh, you're, we're just joining the ranks of the faithful who have professed Christ in the face of opposition through the last 2,000 years. But understand that our confidence is, we're from God, our confidence is in God and false teachers. They're from the world and they have um, their teaching to the congregation of the world, which is a warning. If there's a big crowd following the message, then the messenger might not be legitimate, Right? And it's not always true, but often you look at some of the biggest congregations, churches, and often what's being peddled or taught is not really biblical. Just because a lot of people are believing it doesn't mean that validates the belief, right? It's not true uh, just because there's a crowd. And so he says uh, in verse 6, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. The fourth thing we can used for discerning is we know them by, false teachers by their audience. You know, verse 6, um, it, it alludes to the reality that there's feedback loops, loops in, in our relationships. This is so true today. You just look on Facebook, look on your, or your friend groups, look at the people you, you hang out with, you talk to, and what you talk about. And there's certain groups you know, there's certain things politically, even spiritually, you just don't talk about, right? And there's other groups you're going to talk about. And there's people that they just believe certain things. And it doesn't matter how much you argue, how much you post little things on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever. You're never going to convince these other people that believe because they are constantly reading and listening to messages that are reinforcing a feedback loop of the same truths or lies. And it doesn't matter what little truth bomb you drop in it. You're not going to convince them. It's not going to happen because they're constantly reinforcing the things that they believe. And so what happens is false teachers are teaching things that are being affirmed by those that are hearing with tickling ears what they want to hear. And so it validates them and they validate each other in the air rather than going back to test to make sure what they're hearing is biblical. So so in the last few minutes, I, I just want to give you a couple quick thoughts on discernment that is really vital. So three points on having a lack of discernment, the danger of it, and three points on having having discernment and, and the benefits of it. So the negatives of 
not having discernment. Why is this important? Well, if you look at Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, you might want to write, at the least, please write that down, but you might want to even flip there. Uh, verse 11. Uh, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. So I want to tell you something the writer of Hebrews is saying. I want to explain something to you, but and I have a lot to say, but it's really difficult for me to explain it. Since you have become dull of hearing. I think that's true of our society and many who profess Christ. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child spiritually. But solid food is for the mature, for, for those who are who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What is he saying? He's saying there's three principles in this that are, I think are, are just vital for us to consider this morning. The first one is that lack of discernment is a sign of spiritual immaturity. See, childlike faith and childish or immature faith are not the same thing. See, we elevate childlike faith. You need to have childlike faith. And I just want to be, I don't want to get into all that theological stuff and all that, you know, having the Bible, remember the Bible thumpers, quoting scripture all the time and all this stuff. And whatever. I just want to have a childlike, man, I just believe Jesus and trust him and I'm going to trust him to work, figure it all the rest out. And that's what, that, that is a childish, immature faith. That is not a childlike faith. A childlike faith is to say, you know what? I don't understand how this is going to work out, but I'm trusting God, because he's good and his mercies are new every day. And so I'm going to lay my head on the pillow tonight. And even though I don't know what's going to happen and I feel like everything's going to cave in while I sleep tonight, I know that his mercies will be new in the morning and I'm just going to trust him. That's childlike faith. Childish faith is to say, I don't want to talk about theology. I don't want to talk about, I don't want to go into the Old Testament. I don't understand all that stuff. confusing. I try to read the Bible, but I just can't understand it. It just doesn't make sense to me. I just wait. This childish Immature faith and a lack of discernment is a sign of spiritual immaturity. These are uh, these beautiful apples. Anybody want to try one of them? My, my kids have tried them. Um, in fact, I would like to note to you um, these teeth marks. I don't know if you could see those right there. And so what happened is they came along and they saw this beautiful, shiny uh, apple and they thought, that looks really good. And they just <laughs> tried to take a bite. What's styrofoam? Okay, starving. It's not going to help them. They can't, can't eat that, man. They're like, you'll choke and die. You can't eat that. This one's like wooden, I think. I wouldn't eat that one either. Um, nobody tried to bite that one. Oh, actually, they did. There's a dent. Just didn't pierce the surface, right? And, and so what's funny about kids is they, they, they like to eat just anything they, they want. In fact, a funny story. Uh, one of my kids, she was eating fuzz off a carpet. Okay. And then, um, my, you know, my, my mom had, had read some article or something, probably, Dr. Oz or so, I don't know, but somebody had said, you know, talked about how when we eat, kids eat certain things because they're probably lacking something nutritionally. And so we were seeing the pediatrician and mom had to be there with uh, Janet as they were visiting the pediatrician. And, and she said, well, he's eating fuzz. You know, why, why is what's going on? Is there something he's lacking his diet? He says, she, uh, or she's lacking in her diet. And the pediatrician said, which well, probably just she likes fuzz. It's <laughs> probably what's going on. And the point he's making is they. They just eat anything, right? There's a, there's worse things our kids have eaten and your kids have eaten and probably all of us have eaten, right? That's that's a that's indicative of a child. But you know what? When we grow, we realize that not everything to put is good to put in your mouth, right? And not every idea is good to put in your brain. 
Not every idea is true and equally valid and life-giving and salvific and healing and hopeful. There's a lot of stuff that we, we absorb and we consume and ideas that really are leading to death, that are destroying our lives, that are destroying our marriages, that are destroying our children, future generations. They're, we are destroying their future. And just because they look healthy and get good grades and got a scholarship to, co- to college does not mean they're thriving. When their brains have been programmed by year after year of indoctrination into lies and a secular view of reality that says you are the center of the universe. Just look at your Facebook profile and the selfie. You are the selfie generate. You are the, you are your own God and you are powerful and mighty and wonderful and you can be whatever you want to be instead of saying, you know what? You're broken. You are fallen. You are born into a fallen world that is messed up. And no amount of pursuit, of self-actualization, of pleasure, of whatever you're trying to find that's going to give you fulfillment and hope and, and joy, it will never satisfy you. Ever, ever, ever. Never. It is a fake apple. And you could spend your whole life eating those things and it's, it's, you're going to be in trouble. Because we live in a fallen, broken world and you are in need of rescue of which you cannot rescue yourself. And so you need to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, the rescuer who has provided his righteousness, his death on the cross, and his spirit to give you discernment into what is healthy and what is destructive and poison. And so creation, God made everything good. We have fallen. We're sinful. God has sent Jesus to rescue us and he is going to restore all things. But only in him will you find restoration. Apart from him, you will find only more death. That is the contrasting worldviews. There's a bunch of different ideas out there, but ultimately they fall into two categories. I mean, either those that put their faith and trust in Christ as the only hope or those that try to find hope in their own efforts, righteousness, And by the way, there's a lot of people who profess the name of Christ that are no different than a Buddhist or a Muslim trying to work their way to God because they're trying to get to heaven by their own good works and righteous deeds. And they're so glad that they're so much more righteous than those other people that use those bad translations of the Bible or go to those weird churches that meet in warehouses or wear certain clothing or do this or do that. And they're so righteous they're so good and they're so wonderful and they think that their goodness is going to save them and it will not and so we understand a lack of discernment is a sign of spiritual immaturity childlike faith it's not the same as childish immature faith young children are prone to eat anything but then also uh, understand this children don't like to be called children have you ever noticed that my kids they don't like to be when they're little like you know caroline she's four years old she doesn't like to be the baby anymore, but she's still the baby. She doesn't like that. They don't like kids don't like to be called that. So be careful as you're going around telling people you're spiritually immature. And some of you, by the way, might be internally a little offended that I might be implying that you might be dull of hearing and you might be lacking of discernment. Why? Because spiritual children don't like to be called children. And so secondly, lack of discernment is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Secondly, lack of discernment is proof of backsliding or digression spiritually. You're either moving forward spiritually or you're falling backwards. There's no neutrality. Okay, and so those in Hebrews 5.11 have been described as becoming, they are becoming dull of hearing. 
It's progressive. They're progressively becoming less sensitive to the truth. You hear that? You, you, you hear, I mean, understand this. Young people and those who not consider themselves young people. It is possible for you to have sensitive, soft hearts towards the words of God and then to start denying and being refusing to submit and yield yourself to God's truth. When God reveals and points things out, <clears throat> when God's drawing you to himself and, and, and wanting you, you know, drawing you to giving you a desire to spend time in the word and to pray, it's possible to deny that. And slowly you begin to slowly become dull of learning, dull of hearing progressively lacking knowledge, understanding, and discernment. And so lack of discernment is a sign of spiritual immaturity. So lack of discernment is a, is a proof of backsliding. And lastly, lack of discernment can be proof of spiritual death. In, in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, it says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased minds. To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with a manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Listen, foolish, foolish, that means not discerning, faithless, heartless, Ruthless, they, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There's a lot of things that people say, well, I would never do that, but it's their right to do that. I, I would never choose that lifestyle. I would never end the life of an unborn child. I would never this. I would never that. But I, I, I do support the freedom for people to make that choice. So you, you're saying, um, you're saying, you know, I would never do that, but I would give approval to those who practice things that we know are ungodly and demonic. Those mentioned in Romans 1 are described as having a, a thinking, a debased mind, a thinking or foolishness and being unwilling to acknowledge God. Foolish thinking. So foolish thinking, lack of discernment, understanding is also a sign of those who do not know God having refused to acknowledge Him and He has turned them over to their foolish thinking and they are condemned to it. And so it can be a proof of spiritual immaturity, backsliding, and even spiritual death. And so here's the good news. What What is the fruit of discernment? And I'll, I'll close with this. Discernment is... First of all, proof of spiritual life. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 9 says, At one time you were, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all those, all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so a sign of, dis, of, of uh, discernment, try to discern, is, is the fact that you have life now. Secondly, discernment is proof of spiritual growth. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is asked about why he's taught with parables at times. And he said, well, I, I explain these truths um, so that they're hidden from some, but obvious to others, praising his disciples. He goes on to say, blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You, you hear it, you see it. Why? Because God has opened your eyes and you have discernment and understanding and that's a sign of life and it's a sign of spiritual growth. 
To be able to distinguish between what is wrong and what is right, we first must know what is true. Let me say that again. If you're going to understand what is wrong and what is right and know the distinction, then first you're going to have to identify what is true. What is true. And then lastly, discernment is proof of not just life, spiritual life, spiritual growth, but also spiritual maturity. Again, in chapter 5, verse 14 of Hebrews. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. They, they know the Word of God. They study the Word of God. How do we gain discernment? How do we gain understanding? How do we, well, you've got to make it a habit of your life to know the Word of God. The Bible is the most talked about book that nobody's ever read. People have opinions and thoughts about the Bible, but they seldom read it on their own. And we should not be like that. And so do you, do you understand the Word of God? Do you know the truth of the gospel? Can you articulate what the gospel is to other people and your salvation to other people? Can you explain that? I mean, do you understand where the world can you Can you follow the, the story of the Bible? Creation, fall, uh, rescue, restoration. Do you understand how that is woven into each book of the Bible? Have you read through the whole Bible? Do you know the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament? Do you understand the chronology of what was written? Do you realize it was written by 39 different authors over 1,500, different, uh, 1500 years? Do you realize that? Do you realize that the Bible validates itself, that it makes prophecies that are fulfilled later and other authors record it being fulfilled, that it wasn't a group of people and a group of men that sat together and, and came up with this lie and made this mythical whatever belief system? Do you understand that? Do you understand that the Da Vinci Code has nothing to do with, with history and the authority of the Bible? Okay, do you, do you understand that? I mean, do we understand who the Trinity is? God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how they work together, and what is even relevant about that? Do you understand those things? You've got to understand some truths about God's Word to know Him and to make Him known. Of, I don't know if any of you guys, any of you guys into the Antique Roadshow? Any Antique Roadshow folks here? You dig that? No? Yes. Yes, we have some. Okay. Well, there was a guy that... Um, it was into Antique Roadshow, and um, and he got this blanket um, that had been passed down from generation to generation. And he thought it looked, you know, pretty cool. And he knew it was worth some money because he knew he was really old, like 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 1800s old. And so he had the opportunity to take it to the Antique Roadshow, and he took it there. And the guy that saw it was just blown away when he had, I saw this thing and just was mesmerized. And you could tell just when he looked at it. I mean, that the, I don't know what this guy's got, but it's... It's not a packing blanket, okay, for when you move. All right, there's something significant about this. And he just had thrown over a rocking chair at his house, right? So he comes with his thing casually, comes in, shows it to the guy. The guy says, okay, this is, and he identifies it as being one of the few authentic uh, blankets from a Navajo chief from the 1850s that has survived outside of um, museums. And he valued it to be around 350 to possibly even $500,000 in value. $500,000. So this guy walked in with this thing in a box and just kind of casually walks in. He walked out with two armed guards carrying this thing preciously. Okay, got to his car, drove to the bank and put it in a safety deposit box and preserved this thing and made sure that nobody got to, that it had, I mean, it was incredible when he realized what he had. And I want you to understand that in 2 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 1 uh, and 2, uh, it, we are told that God has 
deposited with, we have been entrusted with a great deposit. A great deposit. We have to preserve it. And then we need to pass it to faithful men who will pass it to faithful men who will pass it to faithful men. We've got to make sure that we pass it to our children, to others, and we're at this deposit of the gospel. Richard Phillips, he says this, theology bores today's Christians, which is another way of saying that we are bored with God himself. And A.W. Tozer put this, the essence of idolatry, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. We have taken the gospel and it's like taking that blanket and laying it out on the floor and trying to, you know, house break a dog on it. And, you know, it just, I mean, it's functional, it's practical, it's helpful. I mean, we're going to keep it, we'll wash it off and clean it, but we're not going to get rid of, you know, we're not going to get rid of it. But we do not realize the sacred nature of what has been entrusted to us and that we've got to preserve it and hold it and keep to it and make sure we entrust it to our children so they understand some doctrines of theology and more importantly, the word of God and what it teaches so that they will not be deceived and misled. We've got to do that so we can articulate it to other people. It is the only hope for civilization is the gospel. People are going to go to heaven and hell based upon their understanding and what they do with the gospel that we have all been entrusted with. We need to be preserving it and articulating it, understanding it, allowing it to change us and sharing it with other people. That is what God has called us to be about. And so we are told Simply to test the spirits. Be careful of the messages. Have discernment and understanding. And know that what we have been entrusted with, we need to share that with other people. Let's pray. 